there wasn't anything technically wrong with that story aside from the fact that I never should have wrote it. It caused me uh, to change the way that I view my responsibility and how I approach checking out sources going forward. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague and co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So, Lisa, someone asked me the other day, how do you get on this podcast? (laughs) Help me describe it. Well, we started On Assignment podcast because we have all these terrific DuPont, sometimes prizes-related events at the J School, and we just thought folks outside the school should get to listen in. Right. And then we thought... Why not interview some of the DuPont winners about their work and get a little behind-the-scenes take on their reporting process? So we are adding that into the mix. Today, we are bringing you a new twist on that even, journalists we ran into at this summer's IRE conference. For those of you who aren't familiar with the acronym IRE, that's Investigative Reporters and Editors. And they hold a big annual conference on investigative reporting. And along the way, we met a few seasoned journalists who we thought it would be fun to introduce to our on-assignment audience as well. So we asked them to join us here, and we'll be bringing you those conversations over the next few months, mixed in with our regular on-campus events. Today's guest is Kate Howard, an investigative reporter who has worked for WFPL's Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting in Louisville since the spring of 2016. Prior to that, she was with the Omaha World-Herald, the Florida Times-Union, and the Tennessean. At IRE this summer, she talked about how she screwed up big time once, but then she learned from it, and she used it as a jumping-off point for a session called Perfecting the 15-Minute Background Check and Why You Should Do It Every Time You Quote Someone. So listen to the following edited conversation we had with her for some really clever and practical tips. Hi, Kate. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? So just a little bit of background. We we heard about you and didn't exactly meet you, but came to your panel. I had seen it on the schedule and thought, that's something I want to go to because it'll teach me something I really need to learn mm-hmm. and had no idea that it was also going to be wildly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you thought so. You started the presentation by t- setting it up by talking about a man that you had used as a source that yes. went badly awry. And why don't you tell us about that and then what happened? Okay. So um, I am sorry to have a uh, a bad story that inspired me to care so much about background. No, no. We learn from our mistakes. That's what we always tell <laughs> students here. Mistakes are great. It is so important. You're right. Uh, so I was a reporter in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was a general assignment, and I was um, just doing quick hit stories about all different topics. And I wanted to write something about human trafficking. And so I went to a uh, presentation, met somebody at a booth, and he had just started this new program that sounded really cool. It sounded very unique. Uh, His name was Dan Benedict. Uh, He was, uh, uh, according to him, a former Green Beret, a nurse. He was a born-again Christian. He uh, was now dedicating his life to saving women from pimps and human traffickers. And he was uh, starting this group that they would physically go and rescue people out of their situations. I thought, well... That raises lots of questions, but it's very interesting. So I wrote a story about Dan and his group. Uh, it was on the front page of the Florida Times Union. Um, it was, you know, relatively typical until I got a phone call a couple of days later from a young woman uh, who said, did you write that story about Dan Benedict? And I said, 
Yes. She said, uh, he's my stepfather. I said, great. She said, uh, and he also molested me. I said, oh, no, I did not know that. And so what went from, uh, you know, kind of a quick feel-good story about this kooky, you know, nonprofit trying to save people turned into that I had inadvertently elevated a sexual predator uh, to the front page of the paper as a hero. Wow. And he wasn't just, it wasn't just this one issue with his stepdaughter, right? There were other things as you then began to do your real investigative work. Right. So now, um, very chagrined, I uh, spent a little bit of time digging into his background. And I went to our uh, library archive and I pulled a file and there turned out to be a file with his name on it, uh, which is always a bad sign. And I looked inside and there were some stories about his involvement in stockpiling stolen military weapons as part of a white separatist movement in Jacksonville. And I also learned that this group uh, had plans to blow up the bridge uh, behind my newspaper building, taking out my newspaper building, kind of a two for one. So he also uh, didn't love the free press. Yeah, everything changed in that moment. And uh, I became very quickly aware of both the power that we have as journalists to kind of give people this venue, give this this legitimacy and the responsibility that we have to ensure that we don't give that legitimacy to the wrong people, to people who don't deserve it. So then the question remains, what did you do wrong? Oh, my gosh, I did so many things wrong. So uh, the first thing that I did wrong was not listen to my gut. So uh, I don't think that we give our guts enough credit. And uh, this guy, uh, he sounded too good to be true, right? Like all the things that he was doing, it was too much. Um, He also literally told me that he had a hero complex. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Which, uh, red flag. (laughs) Yeah, in in retrospect, it's very obvious. Um, uh, Also, I think we all know that um, military backgrounds tend to be very exaggerated. When people report... Uh, Being in these very specialized units, it can be hard to double check that. And that often should be a red flag as well. And some people just feel like they might be liars. And he kind of did. And I did not pay attention to that. So that was the first thing that I did wrong. Uh, The next thing that I did wrong is I didn't have a system of my own that uh, that I would follow every time I did a story to check just really basically who is this person? Am I sure that this person is who he says he is? Uh, does he have the associations he claims to have? Now, I did a really cursory check. I, you know, if I recall correctly, I probably at least Googled him. He was on this local committee of, um, you know, human trafficking organizations that lent him some level of legitimacy as well. That, OK, I figured, well, these other agencies have probably checked him out before they put him on this task force. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out he just volunteered. It, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that serious of a thing. Uh, and so. Uh, so, yeah, I did not have a system and I should have. What happened? Did you have to issue an apology? How did that work? So I did not issue an apology. I did not issue a correction. Uh, What I did instead was reported the hell out of him and his story, and I wrote a whole new front page story. Uh, You know, that was very much rooted in the idea that, okay, we wrote this story a couple weeks ago about this guy, and this is is the next level. I see. So uh, you acknowledge the error in that article. Yes. Well, I mean, the error was this giant omission, right? There wasn't anything technically wrong with that story, aside from the fact that I never should have wrote it. (laughs) So, so yeah. So the story acknowledges that and says, you know, this person that was featured in this in this story about this project actually has this much deeper past, Uh, and you know, 
every time I pulled the thread a little bit more, it got crazier and crazier, you know, with the, the background of the of the sex assault and, and the white separatist stuff and the weapon stockpiling and the bomb plot. And he continued to give me interviews, which was crazy, too. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I produced this really crazy, interesting, um, embarrassing story uh, and uh, published that. And, uh, you know, that caused the organization to make some changes to its leadership, uh, it caused the local task force uh, to institute more rigorous background checks in the people that were representing them and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, most importantly in my book, <laughs> it caused me uh, to change the way that I view uh, my responsibility and, and how I approach uh, checking out sources going forward. Okay, so let's talk about your new system. Yes, okay. So I think everybody should have one and everybody's is not going to look the same. Uh, so it depends on what kind of people you cover, right? So, you know, if you're a crime reporter, your list should look a lot different than if you are a local government reporter uh, because you have to think about what are all the different ways that this person um, that I'm writing about interacts with the people around them, with the organizations around them, and what aspects of their background are relevant. So, you know, one thing when you really get into backgrounding that you're likely to encounter is you'll find things that don't necessarily matter or don't necessarily discount somebody as a source, right? But it's good to know. But what we're talking about more is saying, you know, can I in 10 or 15 minutes get a much deeper picture of who this person is? And so my hope is that running through this list, uh, you will uh, come up with a number of ways to do that and find yourself with a much better understanding than what you receive from a person in an interview. So the first step, um, you know, is not going to blow your mind. The first step is you just need to Google somebody as many different ways as you can think of, right? Right. So Google the whole name, in and out of quotes. Google their name with the organization. Google their name with the city and state. Uh, and my favorite, Google their name in quotes with the word mugshot. And sometimes one comes up. Has that ha- wow. has that happened for you? Yeah, yeah, that does happen. I mean, usually it happens when I'm actually looking for somebody that I know has been arrested and they have a mugshot. Right. <laughs> so that's just confirmation. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, there are a lot of uh, different kind of skimming websites out there that aren't good sources in themselves, um, but they go uh, and search um, police and, and sheriff's offices sites and kind of aggregate um, the information there and scrape the information there into their own sites. And so those are good sources to um, find a mugshot and find the right agency that could give you the information that you need about an arrest. Right. But you also have to be really careful that you're not indicting somebody who has the same last name as someone who's Oh, been definitely. In right. Yeah, that's why I say it's the first check. So um, once you find a mugshot of somebody and it gives you a sheriff's office, you need to call the sheriff's office. You need to get those reports and you need to confirm that you're talking about the same person. And this just came up from Charlottesville, right? That where people mm-hmm. were identifying some of those white supremacists or those guys marching with their torches in Charlottesville and trying to ID them. And then yeah. innocent people were being ID'd and... It can get yeah, really complicated. that's risky business. That happens pretty much every time we have, um, you know, I think it happened most prominently after the um, Boston Marathon bombing. Right. There were a couple of people that wrongly identified as suspects. And, yeah, so you have to be really careful and, and keep in mind that all of these things are things that you're doing to um, advance your reporting. They're not things that you should immediately tweet. Okay. Smart. Yeah, so next, um, the next main step uh, that we should all do, it's a little bit different if you are a freelancer versus a staff reporter somewhere, uh, but your organization's archives uh, should be your first stop anytime you're writing about somebody. Uh, Not just because you want to know what their background is, but also because you want to make sure that you don't fall into the trap of reporting uh, the same person over and over 
that your previous beat reporter did and the beat reporter did before that because they're like the only gadfly at the council meeting, right? So <laughs> the usual you want to check and make sure. Exactly, exactly. Um, but you also might turn up your Daniel Benedict, uh, you know, bomb plots at the same time too. So it's always a, it's always worthwhile to stop and check. And if you are not a staffer somewhere, um, you know, LexisNexis uh, is uh, expensive. Everyone doesn't have access to it, but most libraries do offer some version of it. Mm-hmm. So check your school library or maybe even your public library as well. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. And so then the next one, which is um, one that I enjoy, uh, (laughs) I do enjoy this, Um, one that I enjoy is court records. So this is another thing that depends, um, you know, varies wildly depending on where you live, right? But most courts these days have some kind of an online system where you can type in somebody's name and find records of their marriage, records of their divorce, their child support, um, you know, any debt collection attempts, if they've had an order of protection placed against them. Uh, all of these are things that could be relevant in deciding whether or not somebody is trustworthy and also deciding about whether or not um, they're somebody that uh, that is um, a safe bet to profile. How accessible is that yeah. for a student journalist to... It sounds a little intimidating to walk into a court and try to see some court records. I've lived in quite a few places that have an online system, which is great. But this is going to depend on what state and local jurisdiction that you live in. Uh, So some systems you can uh, literally just search for your local district court or whatever it's called where you live. uh, Find a website and you can search by case. Um, you know, put in somebody's name or a case number if you have it, you should be able to walk into a courthouse and um, ask for access to their um, terminal computer and do some searches. Uh, I do this quite a bit. Uh, This is also something that you can do at a federal courthouse. Now, the federal courthouse has a great um, system called PACER, but it's extremely expensive. And so I would expect that most students don't have access to that. You can walk into a federal courthouse and ask for the clerk's office and you can search yourself by name and see what kind of Um, system or excuse me what kind of lawsuits are out there and then you should um, in most cases be able to ask to look at that physical file in that office as well. Now you mentioned a case number how does one get a case number? Sometimes you might get um, you know a copy of a lawsuit that has a case number written across the top like it'll be on the top next to the names of the parties and the courthouse and the judge and that kind of a thing and that's a handy thing to have if you're tracking something through its completion Uh, It makes it easier if you just want to make a quick phone call to the clerk and ask if anything new has happened in the case. You just give them the case number. That also prevents too many questions. Um, Sometimes we feel compelled as journalists to be like, I'm Kate Howard from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, and I'm interested in this case about this person and this person. When all you really have to do as a person is just call up and say, hi, you know, case number 16-24. Uh, did anything happen in that today? And they will answer that question. <laughs> so you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole. That they're you're supposed used to. to do that. That's what they're there for. Yes, yeah. yes. And lots of regular people call and, and make those questions all the time as well. Some of this sounds like it's more than 15 minutes, but it's still really good to know. <laughs> well, again, so it depends on who you're looking at. Like right. if you're, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, doing a man on the street interview about the eclipse or something like that, you know, some some event, you want to make sure that person uh, is not uh, a criminal or, or um, you know, somebody who's not trustworthy. Right. So, you know, going back to my story about Dan Benedict, the worst part about that for me is that it hurt this this woman who right. had already been through so much. Right. And so what you don't want to do is treat a man on the street interview like it doesn't matter a ton and then have to face the person that this interviewee has victimized and say, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that I elevated that person, um, you know, in my publication. And so 
that you have to treat differently than a politician, which you would treat differently than a doctor or somebody else that you're trying to verify that they're a legitimate source of information. That well, makes sense. Well, that's really interesting how you said the doctor, because I was going to ask you about that. I, I thought this was really interesting. You, you uh, talk about how to verify people's professional licenses. So can you talk about that? Yes. So this is really important when you're looking for expert sources or uh, maybe when you're covering you know, health and health and science type issues, um, uh, you can always, always um, verify uh, any profession that requires a license. So if you're in the medical profession, you know, if you're a veterinarian, if you are, um, you know, a doctor or nurse, anything, a lawyer, a judge, um, all of these different professions will have a local or state, uh, usually a state um, uh, agency that verifies their licenses, that verifies their, they're qualified, and also would track any actions that they have against their license. So you want to make sure that, you know, if you're talking to a doctor, uh, that they don't have a bunch of, you know, malpractice suits, or if they haven't been, you know, had their uh, license suspended for abusing a patient or something like that before you treat that person as an expert. And so, um, th- you know, all of this varies depending on where you live, but your state should have some kind of a licensure board for these professions. Um, often you can search right on the website and see any actions against their license. But if you can't do it on the website, it's, again, another thing. You pick up the phone and make a phone call, and you should be able to get the information that you need or make a records request for any actions against the person if it's, you know, if this person is the focus of your story. Hmm. These are all these are all applicable to life. Dates, doctors, anything. Do this. <laughs> Tinder. Yeah. Tinder, yes. I have a whole different whole different system for Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe that's a different that's conversation. A different, yeah. That's a different one. Um, you talk about using social media, and I know there are different ways to go at that and different kinds of social media that are helpful in different ways. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so think about what uh, type of uh, social interactions the person that you're looking for is likely to have. Uh, you know, look for their pages there. Once you get to their pages there, especially on Facebook or even LinkedIn, uh, you want to try to find, um, you know, are, is the job that they said they have, is that correct? Uh, you know, can I see um, any relationships that they have, family relationships or romantic relationships, which is often public? Uh, you know, you can also look through somebody's friends list depending on their privacy settings. Uh, so you should be able to, you know, if somebody doesn't have really strict privacy settings on their Facebook, uh, you should be able to type some names in. Uh, into the search box and see if they have any friends that are um, are of that name. I do this a lot with last names. If I'm trying to find a family member of somebody, for example, um, that I'll just type in that last name, see who pops up, and try start reaching out to those people. Uh, you also can see what people like, um, you know, what sites that they like and what sites they're interacting with, which is especially important if you're trying to background a politician or a candidate. Uh, you know, you might be able to see if they're posting any photos. Do they have any red flags for racism, for misogyny, inappropriate behavior, anything like that. Um, certainly people who are in high-profile political jobs and, and um, you know, governing uh, deserve that scrubbing to make sure that, um, you know, their, 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 lines have been, their uh, views have been consistent and that they have not crossed the line in their previous social media outings. I feel like LinkedIn is such a good resource, but I don't really know how to use it. So yeah. do you have any tips? Okay. Yes. The first thing you should do is sign up for the LinkedIn for Journalists group. That's so excellent. you... Yeah, you join this group, and all you have to do uh, is attend one of their webinars, and they post it all the time. They do them at least once a month. Once you attend one of their webinars, which are really helpful in their own right, they teach you how to use LinkedIn, how to use the advanced search functions. Then they give you access to their premium version of LinkedIn for a year. And when you have that premium version, there's no limits on who you can send messages to. And you also can... um, 
uh, hide your profile. So when you click on people's profiles, they don't see you. Um, when you have this uh, this advanced um, premium kind of version, this is something um, they'll give you for a year for free as a journalist. But then you have, and then once the years passed, you pay. Is that once the years pass, you wait until they have another seminar and you attend it, oh. <laughs> and you get another free one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is unlimited. You can keep re-upping. It's very it's very good. And so. Um, uh, you know, as a regular user of LinkedIn, I think that this is important to remember to hide your profile if you're looking at something. If you're looking at people that you maybe don't want them to know that you're looking at them just yet, hide your profile. But when you have this premium version, you can keep your profile hidden um, and still see who's looking at your profile. So it's it's a good thing to have. So what happens when you fact check and nothing comes up and you can't vouch for them, but they're a really useful source and they've given you all mm-hmm. this great information and you don't have any other sources? What do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple questions at that point. If nothing comes up, is that realistic? Uh, there's not a lot of people uh, in 2017 uh, who don't have a footprint online. And if they don't have a footprint online, ask yourself, does it make sense that this person doesn't? You know, not everybody uses social media. Not everybody's in a professional type job where they might be um, be crossing uh, across social media and turning up there. So it's not everybody, but most people do. Um, and so the next question is, when you do find some stuff, does it matter? You know, if somebody is, um, you know, a source on a great story, um, a great feature story that has nothing to do with, um, you know, drinking and driving, and this person, you know, had a DUI 10 years ago, does that disqualify them? No. But if they're, you know, a Mothers Against Drunk Driving activist or if they're a politician, then maybe, you know. So you have to put every um, everything you find in the proper perspective. So these tips are so useful But let's just say, hypothetically, I'm a new journalism student. I'm out on a story. I've interviewed a couple of people. I'm working on deadline. I have 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Aside from just running their names through Google, tell me three things that I should have in mind just to, you know, try to check myself, get in the habit of putting these great practices into use. Definitely. So before you're in that moment, <laughs> before that happens, what I hope, 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 hope that you will all do is make a list. Um, you know, when you're not on deadline, what are all the local sites that I have access to? So one of them is going to be um, there's a national clearinghouse of sexual offenders. I would argue that unless you are doing a story about sexual offenders, this is one that it is good to make sure that you are not um, accidentally writing about. I would uh, do a deep Google search. I would go at least several pages into the Google search and search a couple of different ways. Uh, If you have the opportunity to ask somebody (laughs) about them, I think that um, we overlook this, especially because there's so much available to us online, uh, the value of other people's opinions. Uh, you know, if they're if you're writing about somebody that's prominent on a beat that somebody else has covered, ask that person. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, but the best case scenario is you have a list of all of your um, all of your local sites, and that you can run through them relatively quickly in ten minutes. Um, but yeah, so it's always going to be situationally specific. But you want to make sure that they are um, they don't have any major violent or sexual offenses in their background, and you want to make sure um, that they are who they say they are. Uh, and that they have some kind of a, a verifiable way of, of, of showing that, whether it's, you know, a job, um, you know, their names on a website where they work or, or something like that that you can kind of see. Um, hopefully you can also confirm visually that the person that you spoke with is the person that seems to be that person on the Internet. That might be more than three things. I'm and sorry. 
<laughs> when you are talking to interview subjects and you need to get the documentation or verification or corroboration from them, do you have any tips about the ways to do it so that you won't feel as though you're doubting their word or offending them in some way? Mm-hmm. You mean so like when you're reporting a story and, and they're you know making some accusation or something like right. that? Yeah. So I think it's really important to be very clear and honest. Uh, and so the reason why you are um, asking these questions and, and um, asking for verification is because you want to tell the truth and you're sure that what they're telling you is the truth. Um, but you want to be able to defend that person and and that truth to anyone else who asks. And the only way you can do that is to see the documents for yourself. Um, and also on the flip side, you know, people are going to say uh, on the opposite um, side of the fence that this person is wrong. And you're going to do the same thing. When anybody makes an accusation against this person, you're going to ask them for all the documents and you're going to ask for the proof. And this is just the way that you do your job. Um, that's the approach that I take. It's just this is the only way to be fair. You know, I I it's not personal. It's not a question of whether or not I think you're legit. It's a question about, um, you know, my own reputation and my own uh, name as well. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Kate Howard, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks again to Kate Howard for all of that great advice. I have to say that Kate's panel was so emblematic of IRE and that people are so generous at that conference and open and wanting to share information with colleagues that even someone would have a panel, you know, the centerpiece of which was a reporting mistake they made to help teach other journalists how to do a better job. Yeah, there's something really selfless about that conference. Yeah. Generous. Generous generous. People are very generous In in a very competitive industry. Yeah. You can find some of the resources Kate mentioned, as well as links to her work, on our website. That's www.onassignmentpodcast.org. Coming up this season, we'll have more interviews with the filmmakers behind some incredible documentaries, such as Get Me Roger Stone and Let It Fall. If you want to attend any of our Film Fridays, check out the online events calendar at journalism.columbia.edu slash events. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Dervaux, and our inspiring DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at On Assignment Pod. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.